Thank you. I want to begin uh, this morning by telling you a story about a couple from the United States who went to South Korea to adopt their daughter. She was an active eight-year-old who only spoke a few words of English. So they had to gesture with their hands and draw simple pictures on tablets in order to communicate with her. And when they arrived back to the United States, they had trouble uh, getting through customs. They just ran into some roadblocks there in customs. And in the distraction of all that, they lost their daughter. And so, obviously, like any parent, uh, they began to panic, and they began their search for the daughter, and this included many of the airport officials that joined them in their search, uh, but they just could not locate her. Finally, they found a Korean businessman who volunteered to make an announcement over the public address system in Korean. And when that announcement was made, she heard the instructions, and she was reunited with her parents. You see, she had been hiding. She was scared. And she only came out when she heard in her native language the announcement. The good news that her parents were looking for her and that she could be reunited with them. Isn't that a good story? And it's an especially good story because it illustrates so well what happened at Pentecost. Jews from all over the known world came to Jerusalem and heard in their native language the announcement, the good news that God was looking for them and that they could be reunited with God through Jesus Christ. I I just have two primary goals uh, with my lesson today as we enter here into Acts chapter 2. First, in order to better understand what is happening at Pentecost, I think it's really important to know some of the background. So I want to look at three scriptures from the Old Testament to help provide some context for Pentecost. And then second, in order to uh, better appreciate the gift that has been given to us beginning at Pentecost, I want to look at the three signs that occur upon the Holy Spirit's arrival. And so there's three and three, three scriptures about Pentecost to help us to understand the background, and then three signs of Pentecost to help us to understand the gift And so my hope is that spending this time here at the outset will lay a great foundation for us in order to have hearts and to have minds to help us to clearly understand the words of Peter's sermon, uh, beginning in verse 14, uh, that we'll start looking at next week. So first, let's look at these three scriptures. Scripture number one is Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. I want to read this to us. It's going to be a familiar story to many of us. It's the Tower of Babel. 
beginning in verse 1 of Genesis 11. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. This is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Dating all the way back to the early church fathers, students of the word have viewed what happened at Pentecost as a dramatic reversal of what happened at Babel. Karen and I uh, had the opportunity uh, back in May of 2000 to go on a mission trip to the Fiji Islands. And while we were there in the capital city of Suva, there was an attempted coup on the prime minister of Fiji. Uh, And so as you can imagine, things got a little intense there uh, in Suva. There was a curfew placed over the entire city. We had to lock down in the missionary's home for a week, and it obviously changed the whole dynamic of our trip. But I share that story with you because I think of that event whenever I read Genesis chapter 11. As I have read and reread and studied this story, I have come to think of the Tower of Babel as an attempted coup. The whole world had come together to create a city that could reach to the heavens so that, Genesis 11 tells us, they could make a name for themselves. You see, they wanted to build a society which would have no need of the creator God. So in response to the attempted coup at Babel, God confused their languages and scattered the nations. However, confusion and separation was not God's plan for humanity. And so in the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 12, you see chapter 11 is just a prelude to chapter 12. God calls a man named Abram to leave his country, to go to a land that God would show him. And God says to Abram, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And God promises Abram that all nations on earth will be blessed through him. And so we see the fruit of those promises here at Pentecost. At Pentecost, God dramatically declares to the Jews that Luke tells us were there from every nation under the heavens that his promises to Abram are being fulfilled through the reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And Pentecost is a, is a wonderful picture of the kingdom of God bringing the scattered nations back into a gathered community. I love how one author summarizes the two events. He writes, at Babel, earth proudly tried to ascend to heaven, whereas at Pentecost, heaven humbly descended to earth. So instead of the kingdom of earth attempting to go to heaven, at Pentecost, the kingdom of God has come down to the earth. What a beautiful picture, and I think an important picture to understand about, uh, as far as background, understanding context here at Pentecost. That's Scripture 1. Scripture 2, I want to take you to Exodus chapter 19. In Exodus 19, chapter 19, verses 1 through 6, we find ourselves at Mount Sinai. I want to read these six verses with us. In the third month... After the Israelites left Egypt on the very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you're to say to the house of Jacob and what you're to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. During the period between the Old and New Testaments, Jews started observing the anniversary of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai at Pentecost. Because they calculated that Sinai happened around 50 days after the Exodus. And so ever since, students of God's Word have connected the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost with the gift of the law at Sinai. The coming of the law at Sinai marked the old covenant with God, and the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost marks a new covenant with God. The period of the new covenant begins with the coming of the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament prophets wrote about this transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. Through the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36, the Lord said, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. Through the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31, the Lord said, the time is coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, and it will be nothing like the old covenant that I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. 
And knowing these words of Ezekiel and Jeremiah is important background to what's happening here at Pentecost because what the Holy Spirit does when he enters into our hearts is to write God's law there. The Holy Spirit puts God's law on our minds and he writes it on our hearts. You see, some people incorrectly think that the Holy Spirit is a retired author. That somehow he wrote this great work and I don't know, now he's just living off the royalties or something. No, the Spirit is at work today putting this on our minds, writing this on our hearts. At Mount Sinai, Moses went up on the mountain. He received the law. We read about it. We read the beginning of it there in uh, Exodus 19. He went up on the mountain. He received the law, and then he came down and gave it to the people. At Pentecost, Jesus goes up into the heavens in the ascension, and in a very real sense, he comes down not with a written law called, carved on tablets of stone, but with the gift of the Holy Spirit who will write the law upon the human heart. Peter will refer to this um, very thing in his sermon, and I don't, I'm going to go ahead and just jump in here. I mean, it's, we're going to spend some time in this sermon, but I want to share this out of verse 32 and 33 of Acts chapter 2, because Peter refers to it in this way, and I think it's real important for us to hear this at the outset. Verse 32, Peter, Peter says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we're all witnesses, we're eyewitnesses, like we talked about last week, of the fact. There you go. We're eyewitnesses of that fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, this is Jesus, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and Jesus has poured out what you now see and hear. What a wonderful picture of what's going on at Pentecost, of our Trinitarian God, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ ascending to the right hand of the Father and receiving the promised Holy Spirit and then pouring out that Holy Spirit on all believers. So just as Moses ascended the mountain and received the law and brought it down to the people, the Lord Jesus himself ascends to the heavens, receives the Holy Spirit from the Father, and pours it out on his disciples so that the Holy Spirit can write the law on our hearts. That's beautiful context and background from the Scriptures as to what's happening here at Pentecost. And then lastly, scripture number three uh, is in Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 23, verses 15 through 16. It's where we learn about the Feast of Weeks. 
Pick up in verse 15. From the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, count off seven full weeks, count off 50 days up to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then present an offering of your new grain to the Lord. So Pentecost was also known as the Feast of Weeks. And it was given this name because God commanded the Jews there in Leviticus to count seven full weeks. And on the 50th day after the Passover, and Pentecost derives its name from the Greek word meaning 50, they're to present offerings of new grain to the Lord. You see, it was an agricultural celebration. It was a day when farmers would present the first sheaf of the wheat from the crop, thanking God for the beginning of a new harvest. It was one of three Jewish feasts during the year when the people would pilgrimage to Jerusalem. The first one was the Passover, and then 50 days later, Pentecost, and then later during the fall months, they would return and gather for the Feast of the Tabernacles. So this explains why there were so many Jews from so many different nations present at Pentecost. And knowing this agricultural background of Pentecost, I think, gives additional meaning into what's happening here because what results at Pentecost are the first fruits of a brand new kind of harvest. And it's not new grain, but it's a new people who are filled with the promised Holy Spirit. Luke tells us in verse 41 that 3,000 were added to their number. We know the number was around 120. He just told us that. And on that very day, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were added to their number. On this day that was set aside to celebrate the first sheaf of wheat from the crop, On this day, set aside to thank God for the beginning of a new harvest. The disciples experienced the first fruits of a brand new kind of harvest. And so I hope those three scriptures about Pentecost help you to understand the background to this event. There's just... This is a very, very significant event in Scripture. It's one that has great implications on us as disciples of Jesus Christ. And so I think understanding that background, we talked last week about how everything happened in the life of Jesus Christ according to the Scriptures, as the fulfillment of the Scriptures. And we don't ever want to separate what happens here from where it comes from in the, in the Scriptures. And it brings so much, it just brings so much understanding. It brings so much life to what's happening here to understand where it comes from. And so hopefully looking at briefly this morning at those three Scriptures have given you some proper context and some background to this great event that happens here at Pentecost. And so now, uh, with that, I want to just pivot and look at another three things in our remaining time together. 
I want to spend the remainder of our time looking at the three signs of Pentecost to help us to understand this gift, this wonderful gift that was given to the disciples and also to 3,000, and it's also promised will be given to us generations from now, from then. So, um, the coming of the Holy Spirit, we see as we study this text in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, is a very public event. So, there are three signs that accompany the coming of the Spirit. Three public signs, uh, and I want to look at each one to help us to just have a little bit more insight, to help us to understand the gift we've been given. So first is the sign of the wind, is the sign of the wind. Again, let me read Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. You know, biblically, wind is a symbol for the breath of God. We sang about the breath of God this morning as a prayer. In Ezekiel chapter 37, there's a wonderful prophecy about the valley of dry bones. We're going to be spending quite a bit of time in Ezekiel uh, as we read through Acts together and study through Acts. But uh, there's this wonderful prophecy that we don't have time to look at a whole lot this morning, but I just want to read some of it to you. Um, There, Ezekiel prophesies, we read that this is what the Lord says to to this valley of dry bones. The Lord says, I will make breath enter you, and you'll come to life. Verse 8 of Ezekiel 37, then the Lord said to Ezekiel, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these bones that they may live. And breath entered them, and they came to life and stood up on their feet. And then in verse 14, the Lord says, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. And so such wonderful imagery of the wind and the breath of God bringing life in this situation, the prophecy in Ezekiel 37, to the last thing that life could be brought to, that you would think God can do all things, but we're talking about a valley of dry bones. And with his breath, The breath of God from the four winds of the earth, he breathes new life into this valley of dry bones, and they stand up on their feet. And the Lord says, I will put my spirit in you, and you will live. John Stott wrote this. He said, a body without breath is a corpse, and so is the church without the Spirit. 
Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, the Lord, we read there at count of the creation, that the Lord God formed the man from the dust and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Through the gift of the Holy Spirit, God has breathed new life into us. We are new creations. God has breathed new life into us. What were once just dry bones. Through the Holy Spirit, God has breathed his life into us. So that's the first first sign I want to talk about. It's the sign of the wind and the breath of God that appears here at Pentecost. The second sign is this, is the sign of the fire. Picking up in verse 3, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated. It came down. And then it separated, and it came to rest on each of them. So not just the apostles, but the implication is here, as they were gathered together, all 120, that this, the fire came down, and it separated out like a wildfire and rested on all 120 of these followers. Biblically, fire is a symbol for the presence of God. Probably the most well-known example of this uh, in the Old Testament is Moses and the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. If you recall, the Lord appeared to Moses in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw the bush was on fire but it did not burn up. Similarly, at Pentecost, these flames spread like wildfire throughout this room where they were praying and rested upon the disciples, but none of them burned up. Listen, church. What a wonderful imagery, and it's one that we need to meditate upon. Through the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, they, we, you and me, we have been given the very presence of God. Do you believe that? Do you sit here today and believe that the very presence of God lives inside of you? Several of his letters, Paul calls the Holy Spirit the indwelling presence of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16, he writes, Do you not know that you're a temple? Of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Where did the presence of God dwell in the Old Testament? In the temple. But now, with the coming of the Spirit, 
You are a temple of God, and I'm a temple of God, and the Spirit of God separated out like wildfire has come to dwell in us. The Holy Spirit is God's presence in us. His fire comes down and rests on us, and we do not burn up. That's the second sign, is the sign of fire. And then the third, and finally, uh, is the sign of tongues. Let's pick up in verse 4. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Most scholars think that Luke purposefully designs, this is really interesting, uh, purposefully designs the first volume, the Gospel of Luke, and the second volume, Acts, to begin with these corresponding stories. In Luke chapter 1, we are introduced to a tongue-tied Zechariah. If you recall, the father of John the Baptist meets with the angel of the Lord in the temple. And because of his unbelief, he was unable to speak until the birth of his son. And it wasn't until the eighth day when they came to circumcise the child and people were asking, what's his name going to be, that he wrote on a tablet, his name is John. And Luke tells us that immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he began to speak, praising God. Luke tells us this happens because Zechariah had been filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts begins with the disciples waiting in the upper room, praying. But when the Holy Spirit fills the disciples, their tongues are loosed, and they begin to speak, proclaiming the gospel clearly and boldly for all to hear. And the reason I love the corresponding stories is because in both instances, the Holy Spirit loosens the tongues. Isn't that good? Oh, man, church, we need our tongues to be loosened. You see, the Holy Spirit can loosen our tongues when we don't know what to say. When we don't, when we don't think that we have anything to say. When we don't think we know enough to say anything. When we're too frightened to say anything. The Holy Spirit can loosen our tongues to cross barriers of culture, to cross barriers of language, to cross whatever roadblock or barrier might be there with the gospel. The gathered audience knew something miraculous had occurred not just because of the wind, not just because of the fire, 
They knew something had occurred because in verse 7, utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? (laughs) You see, this is a disparaging remark. Most Jews considered Galileans to be backward, ignorant peasants who didn't know enough, who hadn't been to school. It was thought that Galileans could not speak one language clearly, their own, let alone everyone's language. You know, I'm always amazed when I meet someone who's bilingual because I don't even speak English good. I mean, goodly. Yet, yet here these Galileans were. Their tongues loosened to, in verse 11, declare the wonders of God. Ah. The audience was amazed. They were perplexed that these Galileans were declaring the wonders of God. You know, as I've studied and read, gone over this text this week, That's become my prayer. That's become my prayer for me today and for all of us as a a body of believers is that the Holy Spirit will loosen our tongues so that we may declare the wonders of God. The audience just couldn't figure out what was happening. Some or even concluding that they must be drunk. But the narrative ends with the audience asking this question, what does it all mean? And in response to that question, the Holy Spirit loosens the tongue of Peter so that he can answer that question beginning in verse 14, and that's where we'll pick up next week. Church, let me conclude with this. You have been gifted with a new life. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how old those bones are. You have been gifted with a new life by the breath of God. He has breathed through his Holy Spirit new life into you. The very presence of God lives in you. His fire rests on you, but you do not burn up. May the Lord loosen our tongues so that we too may declare
the wonders of our God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these ancient words. Thank you for saving and preserving what happened. Not only what happened on this special day, but all that happened in Scripture leading up to it. So, Father, as we've prayed already today, I prayed our hearts have just been opened. I pray our hearts have been opened. I pray that your spirit, through your spirit, we've been instructed. I pray that we'll leave here uh, not only with a better understanding, but with a greater appreciation for what we have been given through the Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you for Jesus Christ who reigns, who lives. We bend our knee to him today. His name I pray. Amen. This morning, uh, just as an invitation for anyone here who has never responded to the great announcement, to the good news that you've heard this morning, this wonderful news, the wonders of God that have occurred. If you've never responded to that, I pray that you come today and place your faith in Jesus Christ, that you'll confess him as your Lord and Savior, that you'll turn to him, put him on in baptism. Uh, We would love to be a part of that uh, process in your life, process that includes the forgiveness of sins, a process that includes the receiving of the Holy Spirit, this wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit that we've talked about today. Um, Please come today as we stand and sing.